This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Bob Lane. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania by night. And my day job is I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer as a partner at the law firm of Stevens and Lee. We're live at noon Eastern every Friday, followed by Behind the Markets at 1 p.m. Eastern. As always, you can access past shows via our on-demand feature. My guest today, we have a very special guest today, is Rhonda Kaysen. Rhonda is one of the most widely read real estate syndicated columnists for the New York Times. She writes 360 View, a column that launched in September 2016 and which grapples with trends in news in real estate and housing. Rhonda also writes cover stories for the Sunday real estate section of the New York Times and features for Business Day. Her stories have touched on everything from the challenges of environmental cleanup to the lives of doormen in buildings. Rhonda also writes Ask Real Estate, a weekly column that answers real readers' questions. Now, as a commercial real estate lawyer for almost 40 years, I should be embarrassed to say that I've learned so much of what I know by reading, uh, reading Rhonda every Sunday. It's terrific. Um, but today, we're going to hear Rhonda's, uh, as well as some of my own thoughts, uh, to your questions by voice directly. You don't have to wait till Sunday. So if you call at 1-844-WHARTON, that's 1-844-942-7866, you can join Rhonda in my conversation, ask any of your own questions, and obviously we're going to be talking about a number of topics uh, on our own. So let me officially welcome our guest, Rhonda. Rhonda, welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Thank you so much for thank you so much for having me, Bob. Oh, it's a privilege and it's an honor. I've been admiring your work for so long, um, and to have you live in the on, the on our radio show is terrific. Thank you. I'm flattered. Uh, well, maybe we could start out with uh, you telling us uh, about your your background, how you got into uh, this. I mean, to be the uh, premier real estate columnist for the New York Times is a is a pretty big deal. How did how did you uh, get from being a, a young lady to uh, where you are now? Well, I suppose it was sort of an um, unconventional route. Um, I started out as a, um, a reporter at the New York Observer, and I wrote um, about com- a column called Community Boards, which was about kind of local happenings in New York. The Community Boards is um, they're sort of small uh, appointed officials who kind of handle a lot of the zoning issues that come through, and kind of everything goes through them. So it was a it, there there was a there's always a lot of building in New York. And then from there, I actually covered um, the re- – I worked for a smaller paper called The Villager and Downtown Express where I covered the rebuilding of the World Trade Center. Uh-huh. Um, so I covered all of lower Manhattan. But in those days, it was right after 9-11, and um, the World Trade Center was a huge story, and a lot of that was real estate. And um, after that, I-, I lived in Mexico City for a while, and I wrote um, – a lot for an architectural magazine called Architectural Record. Um, And so then when an opening came up in the New York Times, in the real estate section, I I had um, a lot of clips. And so they were looking for writers who could write um, for their commercial real estate column. So I said, well, I've written about real estate. And so I sent them some story ideas and, and worked my way from there. Well, I think I may have told you that I grew up in Greenwich Village in New York, although I've been in Philadelphia for 40 years, and so I remember The Villager. So, but oh, I think, yeah. <laughs> But I think when I was there, you weren't writing for it. That's no. way before your time. Before my time. <laughs> um, so I, I know that we're going to probably hear from uh, a number of listeners who uh, will have some questions of their own, which uh, you and, and, and I will be happy to address. Again, listeners, please feel free to call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 And if you just tuned in, we're live in the studio on uh, Friday, October 13th uh, from noon to 1 Eastern Time. So feel free to call or else email your questions at, sorry, um, email your questions at um, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So Rhonda, um, one of the things that I'm sure uh, just about anybody's listening uh, would be interested in is how to 
buy a house, you know, for whether you're a first-time homeowner um, or, or even if you're, you know, moving on to your second. Um, I know you get a lot of questions like this. You've written a lot of columns on, on this very a- various aspects of it. You know, what, what would you recommend to uh, somebody just starting out? Yeah, I mean, that is, that is the American dream, right, to, to buy a home. And, and I think for many people, myself included, it was, it's an intimidating process. Um, if you've never bought your own home before, um, it, it, home prices are very high. Um, you know, you say, how could I ever afford something of that price? Um, I think the, you know, first thing to do is long before you start buying your home is to get your credit in order. Make sure that you have a credit history, that you open credit cards, that if you've never owned a car, if you live in the city, you may have never owned a car, you may never have a car loan. So start keeping tabs on your credit and make sure your credit rating is good and that you have one. Well, that's great advice because even if, for some of our listeners, you're not anywhere near ready to buy a house, it takes quite a long time to build a good credit rating. So starting that right away, if you haven't already or looking into it, is uh, probably a good idea. Is that Right. That's something you can start right after college. I mean, long before you even think about it, it's something you should be thinking about. And then as you get closer to the idea of it, obviously save as much as you can. Whittle, you know, save what I spoke with a young couple once who had, you know, every time they would go out to party instead of taking a cab, they always took the subway and they would put that money away. Any bonus they got, they put away. But then go to open houses, get a sense of the market, get a sense of what you can buy, um, what what you where what your money will get you, and that will give you a a, a goal that you say, okay, if I'm going to put twenty percent down, and the point of entry is three hundred thousand dollars, that means I need sixty thousand dollars in cash. And how am I going to get there? And maybe that's five years away. Um, you know, maybe maybe you get look at a different kind of loan um, where you don't need as much down payment. Um, and then as you get closer. You know, you want to find a real estate broker who you like, who can show you around and show you different houses or apartments, depending on what you're looking for. And you maybe start to kind of form a what are your must-haves, what are things that you want. Um, and once you kind of get on that roll, it, it, the ball starts rolling on its own. But I think the earliest piece, the hardest piece for many people is the down payment, is is finding yeah. that kind of cash. Yeah, and not only do you need that uh, 20%, or as you pointed out, maybe you could get a loan that maybe is as little as 10%, but there's a lot of closing costs that uh, people tend to forget about that they may have to pay, like if they're getting a mortgage, even a year's taxes in advance, or uh, transfer taxes, or document fees, and title insurance, and all kinds of things. Right, and, million, and the mansion tax in New York, if anything's over a million dollars, that's a, which seems like a huge amount of money, but most apartments in New York, the average apartment has been over a million dollars. So you might have that as well. Right. And so there are closing costs that are that are huge. And most people don't realize have any idea what closing costs are until they're really well into the process. And and since our listeners are all over the country, and although uh, Rhonda writes for The New York Times, I'm based here in Philadelphia, although my real estate practice has taken me all over the country and even to other countries. And I know Rhonda mentioned before she's lived in Mexico, so her experience is uh, pretty national and international as well. But uh, I think our listeners would be uh, you know, should re- recognize that a lot of real estate conventions and market uh, 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 customs can differ state to state or even city to city in terms of what the buyer pays, what the seller pays in terms of surveys or title insurance or things like that. Uh, Absolutely. And those are things that your broker should be able to walk you through and um, should be able to help you understand. Um, also, you can talk to a mortgage lender long before you buy a mortgage lender is you you talk you you go to them and you find out what you can afford i mean that if you're going unless you have cash to buy cash you're going to need a mortgage and a lender can look at your income and look at your debt and tell you what how much you qualify for and oftentimes you might qualify for a lot more than you thought and a lot more than you're willing to pay so just because um, a bank tells you you can spend six hundred thousand dollars you may not be comfortable paying that kind of mortgage bill every month. And the bank may not know all of your obligations and plans. They're going to look at what your sort of necessary expenses are, and you might have expenses that, that 
you choose to pay, but uh, health clubs and things like that that the bank may not take into consideration. Right. Uh, and dry cleaning. People always forget about dry cleaning in their budget. It's And laundry is very expensive. Um, but in any event, um, the uh, what, you know, one thing I think, Rhonda, I'd love to get your, your thoughts about um, are brokers because uh, your, your point is an excellent one that um, you – uh, really, brokers are the first people that you're going to interact with when you start looking at open houses, you answer ads or things like that. And uh, traditionally, the brokers are going to get paid a commission from a seller. So in some states, their legal liability and the legal obligation and loyalty is to the seller, even though they build a strong relationship with the buyer um, and you think you can trust them. Um what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, one thought is that you, you choose a broker who is not representing the seller. So remember, the broker is right. going to get the commission from the seller either way. And so you have so when you buy a house, the, when you're looking at a house, the, that house is represented by a broker who's the seller's, the listing broker. And you have your own broker who's the, selling, who's the buyer's broker, and they split that commission. Right. Um, so you want to make sure that your broker um, – doesn't represent the other side, which which can happen, and and oftentimes sometimes they will say, um, "Look, I represent this house, so we're, I'm going to find you. My your, my colleague will represent you in the sale." Right. However, it's they're both in the office. They now, you know, the incentive is still to sell the property, so it is something to be very aware of. Um, it's not uncommon that the the broker will represent both sides. I personally think that's problematic. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And certainly as a lawyer, I know that lawyers can't represent both sides. We have strong ethical and professional codes of conduct uh, that prevent us from doing that. Brokers um, do not have those those rules. So as long as they disclose what they're doing, they can do whatever they want. Right. Um, exactly. And I think that that is where it can be a problem. And and also you develop a, an emotional relationship with the, um, you develop an emotional relationship with the broker. And, you know, suddenly, you know, she's representing the, the seller as well. And what do you do? How do you sort of back out of that? Do you get a new broker at this point? Um, but it's something you need to be aware of because home sales are very emotional. Um, it's emotional for both the seller and the buyer. Um, if you're buying a home, Nobody wants a lemon. Nobody wants to walk into a, a house that's a, um, you know, that's a, you know, a money pit, right? right? And if you're a seller, you feel like this is my home. It's been a wonderful home. I love it. It's great. You know, there's no problem with the plumbing. Um, we never had a trouble with the roof. And so that, there's a tension in that. So an inspection will reveal things. And there might be issues that come up that need to be negotiated. And, and then, so you want to make sure that your representative um, represents you in your best interest. Which, by, by the way, and, and depends on, on what your, your, your budget is, uh, because, uh, but many people buying, uh, maybe fewer people selling, because sellers do uh, have, a, have a much more reliance on their brokers than, than buyers really should, regardless of, as, as Rhonda is saying, the emotional relationship that you build, um, is, is that you can use a lawyer. Um, and you can have a lawyer in addition. You don't have to have a broker. You don't have to have a lawyer. Um, you don't really go and necessarily retain a broker. Sometimes people, in my experience, Rhonda, tell me about yours, they, they sort of stumble onto a broker. They just go on a on a, on a Saturday or Sunday to an open house and uh, sign in, and a, and a broker shows them the apartment or the home, and this goes on all over the country. And then they the broker may start a conversation and say, "Yeah, like you know, this. If you don't like this house, I could show you some others." Right, and I think that is often why people where people find their brokers, and it's often where they find their lawyers too. I mean, the, then the broker tells them to, you know, here's use John, my lawyer, the lawyer that I use for all my sales. Although and, I caution against that. <laughs> yes, and that can be a problem. Then you also use the inspector that the broker right. uses, and suddenly you have your who is is the inspector working for you, or does the inspector want to make sure the sale happens? You know, that broker? is a absolutely perfect point because you have to remember that 
brokers work for themselves and they only get compensated if they make the deal. If they get that's how they get a commission. They're not paid by the hour. So when the broker chooses an inspector, the inspector's gonna if they're gonna keep getting business from the broker, they're not gonna be too alarmist about the house. If they choose the title company, if they choose the lawyer, all those things, all those people who are doing business, they're not necessarily unethical but they're going to have a business motivation to help make the deal as opposed to caution you away if they think the deal shouldn't be made. Is that a fair agree. statement or do you think yeah, I'm overstating? Yeah, in defense of brokers. Um, oh, I love brokers. I, I <laughs> deal with them all the time and they send me a lot of business notwithstanding what I'm saying. But in defense of brokers, they also want to sell you a second home. So remember, your first home might be small. The commission may not be that great, but people move every four to seven years. So the idea is that they'll sell you again. And if you're really unhappy, they won't do that. And also you won't refer business. So they have, they do, you know, a good broker does want to make their buyer happy. Um, and that's so they an, also that's want an to move things point. along. Yeah. And they want to, you know, like you said, they want to close the deal and they're not going to get paid a penny if the deal falls apart. Yeah. So actually, let me just interrupt for a second because I want to uh, welcome our, our new listeners who have tuned in since we started at the hour. You're listening to the Real Estate Hour here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School. Uh, it's my moonlighting job, and my day job is I'm a commercial real estate lawyer uh, for almost 40 years. We're talking with uh, Rhonda Kaysen, one of the most widely read real estate columnists in the country, who's the principal real estate columnist for the New York Times, and we're answering uh, our listeners' questions. If you want to call, please do at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Rhonda writes a column, uh, many columns, but one that uh, really answers written questions, so you have an opportunity if you're listening on Friday, October 13th, to call and get Rhonda's direct uh, advice um, here on our show. So, R- Rhonda, we've been talking about for first-time home buyers, and you've made some uh, really good recommendations in terms of uh, how to save for the down payment. Uh, you know, talking to them, to mortgage lenders to get a sense of what you can borrow. Talking to brokers, um, which is what, what what once you've got your 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 team and you've started out, um, you know what what should what should home buyers look for in in, in choosing a property? Um, they used to say that you want the the, the Worst house on the best block, not the best house on the worst block. Is that is that still true in changing neighborhoods? Yeah, I mean, I think there's truth in that. Always says, you know, you know, right to buy the the smallest house in the best neighborhood. I mean, it depends on what what you need. If you're if you have children and you're planning on sending them to public school, um, you want to make sure you buy a home in a district that you want to send where you want to send your children to school. Um, if you're not planning to send them to public school, then it doesn't matter as much. Or if you don't have children, those issues are not as important. Um, sometimes, you know, you can take advantage of that and buy a house in an emerging neighborhood um, that, or a neighborhood that's changing or a neighborhood that, um, where the property values are lower and you can really fix it up and make it nice. Um, if you're not handy and you buy a house that needs a lot of work, um, that can be very expensive. And I, I know there's a lot of the line is always to buy the worst house in the best block. If that worst house needs a new kitchen and you are going to have to pay people to put in that new kitchen, kitchens are expensive. So you have to make sure either that you can do a lot of the work on your own if you're handy. And if you're not like, like myself, then you have to be, know what those things are going to cost you. Um, so when you sort of say a house that needs you know, I bought a fixer-upper kind of house, but we bought one that we could live in that, you know, you could just live with an old bathroom and didn't need to be replaced right away. Um, so it depends on what sort of work needs to be done. And so if you buy a house that needs a lot of work, um, that's sort of maybe, and you're not handy, and you're going to have to sink a lot of money in hiring outside contractors, it might be a much more expensive house than you anticipated. So have a sense of what you are capable of and what realistically you can do, what you have the time for, and then sort of say, well, maybe I need something that is more turnkey than I wanted to. Um, so maybe I need to look in a different neighborhood or maybe and, I need um, and, a smaller house that's more done. And, and one of the things you mentioned that you'd want to have um, in terms of the process is a home inspector or building inspector to let you know what are the defects and the problems, like the windows, the heating system, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
But uh, going through, I guess, with an architect or a contractor so that you have a, a good sense as to if you do want to improve the property, you know, remodel uh, the, the bathroom or the kitchens, as you, as you pointed out, um, or, you know, add an addition or do a, do a deck or something like that. Um, sometimes those things can, uh, you know, help you make, make plans as to, you know, what you can do now, what you can do later. Right, and and brokers have have a not to to have this be the broker bashing hour, but brokers have a way of saying, oh, you can just swap this out or knock out this wall, and these are big projects, you know, and yeah. so it's it's easy to imagine, you know, taking off the roof and adding a second story, um, but when you really get down to it, it's a big project. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of upset in your life for some period of time when you're going to be living there. So um, it has to be something you, you want to do. And, and some people love to do home repair projects. Some people are just spent every week in a Home Depot. Other people, it's, it's not their, their first love, and that's okay. So you have to have a sense of, um, I think, who you are and what you are willing to put up with and willing to do and willing to spend your extra money on. I think that that's ec- excellent advice. And in fact, often, um, you know, we, we've been talking about first-time home buyers, but we'll certainly uh, sometimes it's a, there's a staging, as you said. You'll start with a smaller house or less expensive, and uh, for one's first house, and then as uh, one's income grows and uh, savings grow, uh, you can move on and build some equity that first house, and then you have some cash to maybe do the fixer-upper or to customize uh, the next house. Exactly, and if you once you know home ownership is a is a path to financial stability largely because of the equity that you build in your home over the years so you buy a small house and if you're fortunate enough you buy it sort of a, a good time in the market and you, you, your home will accrue in value and you're invest you're paying off that mortgage and you're accruing equity and then when you sell that home you have more equity than you had before and you can either buy a larger home or use the cash from that equity to do repairs that you may not have been able to do on the first home. Um, and, you know, you, you, again, your family grows, your life changes, or maybe you downsize. I mean, maybe you buy, um, and the kids move out and you say, well, now I can get a smaller house that's, that's done and looks great and it's half the size, but I don't need the space. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, owning your own home is, is probably one of the best, uh, most significant investments um, for building w- uh, wealth or, or equity uh, that anybody can make because not only will, will homes generally appreciate, although we've had times certainly in the last 10 years where markets have been pretty volatile as they are over time, but over a long time, uh, homes usually appreciate, real estate appreciates, but you also have all these great tax deductions. Mm-hmm. The mortgage uh, interest tax is a big mor- one. Mortgage, in- mortgage interest is deductible. Your real estate taxes are deductible. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, usually there's, uh, when you sell, in terms of the gain on the house, uh, and those laws are changing constantly uh, with tax law changes um, as to you know what's sheltered and, and what's not. Um, what maybe we should talk a little bit about um, investors also, um, because you don't have to just be buying real estate for your own use. Obviously, uh, no, you don't. And um, you've written actually, some great columns about uh, you know real estate, giving advice to real estate investors who are either starting out or different markets. Right, and there's actually I wrote a story not too long ago about um, sort of a, a cottage industry that's growing of um, online companies that will help you buy um, properties in other markets, and they will they'll they vet the property, they do the inspection for you. Um, you don't ever have to go there; you buy it with a click of a mouse. They do analysis to sense how much um, monthly income you will make, how much you'll make if you hold on to it for 15 years. They find tenants for you. They work as a property manager, and um, you really can be an armchair landlord from afar. And um, some, and then I spoke with a young man in New York who could not afford to live to buy an apartment in in New York. He was a renter, um, but really wanted to own, and so he he bought an apartment site, bought a house sight unseen, and and I believe it was in Atlanta, and is a landlord there, and plans to buy a second one, but still feels like he'll never be able to afford New York because the market is so expensive. Um, but he can own property and profit from that elsewhere. Well, you know, as a, as a real estate lawyer, I'm considered by people who know me not quite as risk averse as most lawyers are. But having said that, 
what you just said scares the hell out of me, Rhonda, in terms of buying a property sight unseen with uh, you know from online information. I, yeah, I it, it I, sounds I think really it is- cool, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I see some potential problems with it. I mean, one is you're relying on a company that you don't really know to manage your property. Um, what happens if that company goes belly up? What happens if they decide to get into a different market? You're now hundreds of miles away from this property that you still own. And not all markets are always healthy. And what happens if you, say, lose your job and want to sell that house or sell it for whatever reason, and the market is slow and you can't sell it? Or the house, you know, the boiler or there's a hurricane. I mean, there can be all sorts of problems that can happen. Well, and also, and I mean, you can you look at... You can, but Yeah, exactly. You don't know the neighborhood. You can look at the house online, and it could look terrific. You're looking at photos, um, all this kind of stuff, but you don't know whether around the corner is a garbage dump or a power plant, you know, high-intensity high power lines or... You know all kinds of things. Uh, so I, I think those are great resources, and I don't mean to be you know too too negative about about those because I think they. It's, it's like we're talking about brokers. I think and lawyers and even even journalists. <laughs> we all have our pros and our cons, and I think you just have to understand uh, you know what advantages a certain resources offering and what the the risks associated with it are. Certainly. And um, and I think that um, real estate has as it be- has it's become more of a commodity and more of an investment than home ownership. I think it has become something that people not all you know in 2008 should have been a strong lesson that it's not always profitable and it's not always a solid investment and there's a risk to it. And you know, unlike buying a stock. Um, you know, your stock doesn't leak, and your stock doesn't um, need a new boiler, and it doesn't get, you know, slammed in a hurricane. So, um, And you can sell it generally pretty much right away. You know, right, even a, if you lose money, Even you if you lose it. money, right. That's what we call a liquid investment, but hopefully it's not liquid like being underwater. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going we're gonna to take, listeners, we're going to take a short break, um, but, but please stay with us. We're talking with Rhonda Kaysen, one of the most widely read real estate columnists for the New York Times. We're discussing all kinds of real estate questions and uh, answering and addressing questions that uh, readers, uh, Rhonda's readers have asked over time, but we're happy to address your questions as well if you want to call during our break or after at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We're live on Friday, October thirteenth. Um, and when we come back, we're going to be giving some uh, very uh, good advice and some secrets about how to protect your home when you're away or for disasters, certainly coming out of this hurricane season. Uh, Rhonda has a lot of information and advice for uh, for dealing with that. And we're also going to address what to do about the crying baby next door. So please stay with us. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Bob Lane. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for those who stayed with us during our short break. And welcome to anyone who's just tuned in. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm a commercial real estate lawyer practicing as a partner at Stevens and Lee here in Philadelphia by day. And I teach real estate law and transactions as an adjunct professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania by night. Uh, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour. And if you're listening on Friday, October 13th, we're live in the studio. Our guest is Rhonda Kaysen, one of the most widely read real estate columnists for the New York Times, um, in fact, read all over the country in the Sunday Times as well as other columns. Uh, we're answering uh, callers' questions about real estate, whether it's your housing, investment, tenants. Uh, we're going to address crying babies next door, one of my favorite topics, um, and many others. So, Rhonda, um, during our first uh, half hour, we really addressed mostly home buying for the first time and uh, you know, other people buying real estate generally or their, their homes. Um, you've written so many columns on so many subjects. Um, you know, a few that, that I've read uh, had to do with really uh, you know, protecting your property, whether you're on a vacation or during a storm or a hurricane. We've just come out of a terrible hurricane season, or maybe we're still in it. Um, you know, what are some of your thoughts? What should people think about uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of become an issue recently, um, but it is something to always be aware of. And what I've found in my reporting is the key is to really kind of stay on top of maintenance, that you, you know, 
that you see your house as sort of a well-tuned machine. And they, um, I, I spoke with a, you know, a contractor who said, you know, you don't wait until after you go on your thousand-mile car drive vacation to get your car tuned up. You do it before you go on the vacation, right? So. I'm sorry. I um, wish I had listened to that advice myself once. I went on a road trip before I checked uh, the tires. Right. So to to um, I'm hold on. I'm sorry. Um, to avoid ending up on, um, you know, on the side of I-80 with a broken down car, you want to make sure that you check and see that you're you're. I'm not a car person, so my analogies there are failing. But um, get your boiler clean before the winter starts. Get your furnace clean. Get your gutters cleaned. Those things are they are not that expensive. But if you stay on top of keeping water away from your house, which is your biggest enemy, um, those sort of daily regular maintenance things that you do, that you just have a checklist that you go through. You can even get these checklists online um, as apps that you keep up on these little things. Um, you could avoid major problems, even if there's not a storm, you know, even if there's not a hurricane. But if you have a snowy winter, make sure you, you maybe hire someone to get clear some of that snow that's piled up off the roof. Um, but keep on top of, you know, if your gutters are getting old, they may, you may need to replace a gutter or two. Um, and if you do the one gutter, the one year it needs to be replaced, then you're not having to do them all. And it's, it's not as expensive. And, um, and so if you keep on top of your maintenance, that can protect a lot. There's also, I mean, there's such great new technology. Um, you can get alarms that tell you if water is leaking in your basement, or you can put alarms and sensors underneath the sinks and toilets that can catch those things before they flood your bathroom. Yeah, technology now is uh, it's incredible. You're, that's a really excellent point. I know my my son has, has just put these little wireless um, uh, uh cameras that that you just put in your in your home we can you can check on his cat um or certainly for for security purposes uh, right from uh, his uh, smartphone right and i mean now there are many online security companies that you can buy the um you know you can buy the equipment whether they're cheaper or better than than the more traditional models the jury's out but you know you can check it all from your app and a lot of the home security systems are now all done from your app as well um you know, so you can do check everything from your phone. But um, the the biggest issue is to just be prepared. And, and I think in terms of for emergencies, there's a lot of emergency preparedness that you can sort of just stay on top of. And very few Americans spend time thinking about those things and spend time preparing. Um, so, you know, keep some water in the basement, you know, bottled water and keep some, you know, canned food and have the, and have maybe a go pack ready. You never know what could happen, and it, it being somewhat prepared makes makes a difference, even if it's not complete preparation. Um, but just really kind of knowing your house, like um, know how to turn the water off to your house in case a water main breaks. Know how to turn the gas off in case there's a gas line. Know where the gas comes in. I yeah. mean, a lot of those things that many homeowners, you, you especially if you if for first-time homeowners, you move into a house and you've never thought about these things, um, know the electrical panel and what turns on, you know, how to flip the switches. And um, if you wait until you, you need to do that, it's always too late. Again, and right, and these are things you can actually do when you buy the house. An inspector can walk through and show you a lot of these things. But you can also ask your plumber when he comes to fix a leaky toilet, say, hey, what am I supposed to do with my boiler in the winter? Um you know, what are my radiator valves? And I keep on understand how these how your house works, so that you know when something's not right. And just you should always just sort of be aware of it. Yeah. Like you go to the doctor once a year, you should sort of wander around your house and look at the ceiling. Is there a brown spot? Maybe there's water that leaked there. So, in other words, preventative maintenance that you're describing is always cheaper than repairs and, and dealing with problems. Just like preventative medicine is better than waiting to go have surgery. Um, the, so it's uh, it's excellent. Even ch- things like changing the filters in your in your uh, your furnace or your air conditioner can keep your energy costs down. It can keep the effectiveness of your, your heating and, and air conditioning much better. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Thank you. <laughs> what what um, 
let's let's talk a little bit of time about owning owning property. Uh, so whether you're um, renting for yourself, you're renting your own apartment, or you're an investor and you're renting to tenants, what are, what are some of the issues that are different um, uh, about renting versus versus owning? Uh, do you get a lot of those questions for your column? Yes, I mean I think the the renters primarily have much less power right than owners. You you are it's not your property and you're at the mercy of the landlord and your rights are really limited to what's in the lease and what the law is of your local community. Um, and so tenants are always, you know, if your if your toilet is broken and, and you're having issues with it, you can call and you own your home, you can call a plumber and have that fixed or not. Um, if you're a renter, you're really at the mercy of the landlord doing the right thing or doing what he's supposed to do. And that can create an endless tension for tenants. Um, often most not in all communities, but in most communities, tenants also have less money. And generally, your renters don't have the same means um, that homeowners have, which is not always true. In New York, there's many very wealthy rent- very wealthy renters. Um, you know, trying to find a good landlord if you can, if you're able to do some research on who your landlord is, helps. Landlord's reputations help. Um, and know your rights as a tenant. I mean, New York has very strong rental laws for some tenants, not for all. You know, most major cities um, do have a lot of landlord-tenant uh, specific city laws. Um, in some states, they're statewide and they're less. But you're right. You have to know what your rights are. Know what your rights are. When you move in, oftentimes the landlord in so many communities is, are, is required to give you the tenant sort of bill of rights. And so know your community's rights. Know whether you live in a tenant-friendly area or a landlord-friendly area. And that will determine um, how you can proceed because, you you know, um, can your landlord, does he have to offer you a new lease when your lease expires? Um, can he raise your rent any amount when your lease expires? Um, those are things that you should know. And if you're a small-time landlord, you should also know your rights and the law as well. Can What happens if a tenant doesn't pay? How hard is it to get that tenant out of the apartment? Um, what happens if a tenant damages your apartment? So these are things that many people, I think, um, do not know their rights or have limited information about their rights and don't know the consequences of pressing for things. And so it's a much more delicate dance that you play as a tenant, and um, many tenants are in very vulnerable situations in terms of what they can push for and what they can't. That's that's a very, very good point. Uh, I just want to welcome any new listeners who have just tuned in. You're, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Channel 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I'm a commercial real estate lawyer by day and an adjunct professor teaching real estate law by, by night here at the University of Pennsylvania. We're talking with Rhonda Kaysen, one of the most widely read real estate columnists for the New York Times and addressing all kinds of issues that uh, you know owners, renters, investors uh, might have with, with real estate. Uh, and if you're listening on Friday, October 13, we're live in the studio. For your questions, please call us at one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, and of course you can email your questions to businessradio at siriusxm.com. If you and if I'll be happy to address your questions uh, at any other show or or by by email. Uh, Rhonda, we, talking about managing your own property, um, whether you own it or rent it. Um, you know, and we mentioned uh, sort of only half tongue in cheek. You know what to do about the crying baby next door. But whether you uh, own your home and you've got uh, a problem with the neighbors making noise, or you're in an apartment and there's constantly dogs barking or or babies crying, what would you advise uh, a, a listener um, or one of your readers uh, in that situation? Yes, neighbors. After your landlord, your neighbors are your biggest complaint. And this is not just true of apartment dwellers. People in houses hate their neighbors too i think um neighbor dealing with neighbors is hard it is like a landlord you don't have control over who lives next door to you or above you um and everybody's you know you know your your castle you know your home is your castle and you want it to be quiet and you want control over your environment and neighbors are the wild card you don't have control over what your neighbors do if you live in a house your neighbor could put in a you know one of those big blinding strobe lights and suddenly that's blaring into your into your bedroom window at late at night or they have a barking dog or this you live in an apartment building with a crying baby next door um the crying baby you know i try to remind readers that babies grow up they don't stay babies forever then they become noisy toddlers but um 
you know, neighbors are, are difficult, and a lot of it is psychology. A lot of it has to do with um, trying to persuade somebody to behave differently for you um, when there don't, there's not really any consequence. Um, you know, what, what do they have to gain? So, um, you know, you can have a standoff or you can try to appease them with wine. I find wine <laughs> is a great solution. Certainly for crying babies. Particularly for crying babies. Um, And again, with the crying baby one is try to remember, try to see it from your neighbor's perspective. The neighbor, the crying baby's keeping you up. I can pretty much guarantee they're keeping, that baby's keeping their parents up too. Um, So try to, or if you are the parent of the baby who's crying and you're exhausted and your neighbor um, downstairs pounds on your door, it happened to me once many years ago, um, you know, try to understand from their perspective, they don't have that baby, and maybe you can be the one to give the bottle of wine. So, you know, try to be, na- na- being neighborly works both ways. So, I, you know, I try to encourage people to be patient with the people who live near them and, and try to have some compassion for them. And, um, you know, start with kindness, start with warmth, start with, a you know, a basket of cookies. And, but some issues are more legal and more serious. Um, you know, if somebody has, a retaining wall that's encroaching on your property or collapsing onto your property or they have a tree that is hanging over your house and you need to trim that tree and you need access to be able to do that. These are more serious issues and, you know, you might have to call a lawyer or you might have to report them to the town or the city um, or your municipality. Um, but you but, but gener- generally, I think your your point is is best for everybody. If you can build a, a, a cooperative relationship to start, then you can avoid having to call the lawyer like me or or, or the city or, or, or get others involved. I, one, one of the things that's important for people to remember, and this is the lawyer in me mentioning this, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is if you're an owner, you can deal with your neighbor directly, legally. I mean, well, you can deal with anybody directly as a, as a matter of relationship, but meaning you can... Um, Uh, there are nuisance laws. So if you have a property next to somebody else's property and they're making, there are noise ordinances and there's sometimes light ordinances and things like that that you can't have uh, to work or have loud noises after a certain hour or either at night or before a certain time in the morning. Uh, But if you're a tenant, you have no uh, rights against a tenant in an apartment, uh, you know, next door downstairs, you really have to complain technically to your landlord, and it's the landlord who would then have to exercise rights under the lease against the other tenant. Although you could also call and complain to the municipality. I mean, if you have a neighbor yeah. who's being loud and noisy, you can directly yes. call 311 if you live in a city that has that service, or 911 if it's late at night. Um, so, you, you know, there are some steps you can take directly to engage um a, you know, a neighbor, but you're right. You do need to go to the landlord. But even with a neighbor where you could maybe sue for creating a nuisance, it, you know, lawsuits are expensive and difficult right. and may not work. Um, you know, I urge people to go to your municipality and see if the town can deal with it. You know, see if, again, you know, you're still in a similar situation where you're trying to compel somebody to act. And it's, it's always difficult that way. Um, another good thing to do is to build a positive relationship with your neighbor before anything goes wrong. So that you ha- you know their name and um, introduce yourself when you move in. Um, shovel the snow for them one day uh, for no apparent reason when it's snowing. That's a brilliant suggestion. Just, that builds a lot of credit. Yeah. Um, offer to you know. Uh, I had a neighbor. You know, we had a, a piece of our property was above. It was sort of close to our neighbor's property, and, and our grass grew high, and we didn't have a very good mower. And I know it probably drove her crazy. And she finally said, "You know, my landscapers will just mow it. Do you mind?" And it was a very nice thing for her to do because I'm sure she was very annoyed that I hadn't properly mowed my lawn. But um, she took care of it, and I didn't mind, and it built rapport. And then I had a nicer snowblower, and I just shoveled her walk when she had an infant without talking to her about it and did it for her. And then you, over the years, you build rapport so that if something comes up where you do need to talk to them, if there's a water runoff issue or um you know, you have, you know her name, you know that she knows that you're a nice person. And, um, and that was a, she solved a problem with the grass, um, that was bothering her without having to confront me. She found a solution 
um, to the problem. That and is such such smart advice. And there's a, there's another major fringe benefit to that to that relationship that you're advising built. As, as a real estate lawyer, I do uh, some zoning and land use and approvals for for real estate and other things and for businesses. Um, and if uh, you're building that kind of relationship with your neighbors, they're not necessarily going to oppose when you go for a zoning approval to build a deck or to uh, expand your business or, or whatever it is, uh, whether it's commercial or residential. Exactly. Uh, and you might find that, um, in fact, me and this neighbor have a, there is a runoff issue and we've talked about, well, do we collectively hire some, a landscaper to solve the problem for both of our properties? And, you know, we have not done anything yet, but you, you start to build form bonds that can help you going forward. But also, if there's an emergency, you can call this person and, and ask them for help. And, you know, um, and you, you build relationships where you, you're neighborly and you have more patience about noise and these things bother you less because there's a human face there. And, um, and sometimes I find, too, if you have an issue, people often tend to immediately call the, the city, and, and I, I suggested that. But the first thing to do is, with a difficult neighbor, um, is I suggest is go talk to that neighbor. Introduce yourself. Say, hi, your dog has been pooping on my lawn. Could you please stop? My name is Rhonda, and nice to meet you. And you'd be surprised how people react to that. They're not expecting you to come directly to them. Um, they may not be as angry as you think, and maybe they will be angry, but at least you've given them a chance to respond yeah. without getting them a ticket, which just... Oh, I would, that's certainly not going to build a good relationship by getting them a ticket. And my mother always used to say you win more friends with honey than with vinegar, right? This is a... Do nice things for your neighbors, as my producer says, and uh, they'll do nice things for you. So that's really good advice. Uh, listeners, if we, we still have a little bit more time. If you have, want to join our conversation, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We're talking to Rhonda Kaysen, one of the most widely read real estate columnists for the New York Times, and we're addressing some of the problems that her many readers have uh, come up with and asked her about over time, uh, as well as anything that you might uh, have that you want to talk to us about in our last few minutes. Uh, Rhonda, one of the things I really wanted to get your your thoughts about, um, because um, I know it's very big in New York, but I'm seeing it all over the country in different formats, or what we call micro-apartments or micro-homes, that people are willing to live in much smaller spaces. Um, Are you finding that to be the case? Yes. I mean, the rise of the the tiny houses is what's happening in other parts of the country. But in the city, we see micro-housing, and it's happening. I know it's happening in San Francisco as well as New York um, and probably in other cities, too, where developers are are building um, apartments that may be smaller than what city zoning codes would normally allow, and the city provides this variance. And sort of in exchange for that, you get all new finishes. It's a very nice development. And, you know, it's um, and they're sort of designed to pack more people into less space. Um, and so it is a cheaper apartment, although the price per square foot is probably much higher than an older, larger apartment. Um, and they work well for singles and for young professionals. Um, there's some criticism of them that they ultimately contributed to dry, rising real estate costs um, because really we need housing for families and and this just you know um it only targets one group but um it targets a group that needs housing too and theoretically then the apartments that they might have piled you know seven roommates you know together can now be free for a family to live in um and the tiny home movement is quite interesting and, and happening um all over the country i know i believe portland has changed its laws to provide for that or is thinking of it and i know san francisco is also been toying with these ideas of sort of legalizing these garages. Um, but there's all sorts of interesting um, building materials. People are using like, you know, uh, shipping containers. And um, and some of these are almost, um, you know, are like prefab sort of portable houses. And um, it really changes how people live and, and looks about, you know, living much slimmer lives with much 
fewer material thing, possessions. Yeah, it used to be uh, looked sort of down on as like you know trailer trailer parks or you know modular home parks um, are now getting much more upscale. Where mm-hmm. some of these exactly what you're describing uh, can be you know quite upscale, um, and they could be delivered by truck to a to a lot or in a, a subdivision. Right, and quite well designed by very. Um, you know, uh, very well-known architects and designers are getting in on this, and um, and they're designed quite interestingly. And and you know, the, theoretically, the idea is that you then spend less money on housing and you free up money to do other things with your life. Um, of course, they don't work for everybody. Um, I don't know if a family of four could live so well in a tiny house, but um, people have lived in small quarters, you know, throughout history. So. There's no reason to give it a shot, not to give it a shot. Well, it's also when we started the hour, we were talking about first-time home buyers, and and you said, well, let's say it's a relatively inexpensive uh, property, at least in major cities, say three hundred thousand dollars. And if you need twenty percent, that's sixty thousand plus closing costs. That's a lot of money for young young professionals to to start with. But if you have if you're buying one of these what we're calling micro or much smaller properties, it may be a very good entry point for that first home, and then when Somebody gets married or has children, or the family grows in whatever direction. Uh, you know, then you could, you've already built a little equity. Exactly, exactly, and um, and it might give you some freedom to save money for something. You know, it's also you can use some of your money for savings um, rather than paying so much toward rent or toward a mortgage. You know, we have we have a caller who's been waiting. We have only two more minutes, uh, Mitch, but uh, you have a question about the tiny house mo- movement or a comment. So uh, welcome to the Real Estate Hour, but we're going to have to be brief in addressing you. Thank what- you. I um, So basically, I think that a lot of that tiny house movement really does work actually better for single people um, because some of these prefab homes, you can actually acquire for you know thirty, forty thousand dollars rather than trying to stretch out your budget with already occurring student loans, things like that, for three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, you know, in some of these areas. Um, and I think that that allows you to own you know tangible property with minimal debt to then later on be able to acquire larger you know larger pieces of property. So it kind of pushes the debt down. Um, I don't think that the tiny home movement should be seen so much so as like a you know potential, you know, for families more so than it is potential for single people as well. Yeah. Mitch, thanks so much for calling. I think that's a very, very good point. I think consistent with what Rhonda was saying, that it's a good, more for singles and a good way to start. Rather. Absolutely. And, and and Mitch made a good point about student debt. You know, millennials have enormous student debt that, that previous generations didn't have to deal with. And it gives you autonomy to have a t- to have a home, even if it's a tiny one. And um, and that that's a critical thing. And and not burdening yourself with enormous amounts of more debt um, when you're at a point in your life where you may not need the space um, is a, I think can be a very smart move. You know, it just you want to make sure it's something you can live in and has meets your own personal needs. So, Mitch, thanks so much for calling and for that uh, that co- that comment. Um, so, Rhonda, we've got just about a minute. Um, is there, uh, you know, what, what's probably your most interesting experience as a columnist? Oh goodness! In one minute, <laughs> and actually in thirty seconds. Um, I thought the co-housing trend is kind of cool. Um, it's a sort of this trend of a collective housing, um, almost like the rise of the dorm for young professionals. And I find it sort of fascinating that um, people are interested in doing that and living sort of, um, you rent a room in a house and it's almost like going back to like SRO hotels. Um, and uh, But for sort of upscale young professionals and they sort of orchestrate all sorts of events. And Well, that that is, a, that is a teaser because you're going to be a guest again and we're <laughs> going to address co-housing. But at this point, we have to wrap up our show. Um, you've been listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111. I want to thank our very generous guest for her time, Rhonda Kaysen, most widely read real estate columnist for the New York Times. I want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Please join us again next week on the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.